This episode is brought to you by BitMEX, the OG crypto exchange that is back and better than ever. You'll hear more about BitMEX later in the show. I thought after this last bull market that we brought more people over that had fully gone. But I think many people who like dipped their toes and got in in this cycle just kind of were like, yeah, I believe in it. Here's my money. Please go up. Please go up. And now that it's gone down, they're like, I knew this was a freaking scam. You know, like I like all the people that I talked to in my life, you know, for the last 18 months, I got used to this. I was like, oh, you work in crypto. Oh, that's very cool. And now they're like crypto. Well, you knew it was going to come down, didn't you? Like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it's like, all right, man. All right. Well, and my and ultimately, like for folks who do have this is why you can't borrow someone else's conviction. Uh, so what I'll say is thanks for two more years of head start. Yeah. You know, yeah. before everyone else uh, comes back in. So Yeah. Happy Friday, everybody. I am here joined by my co-founder, Mr. Mike Polito. Uh Santiago is on a big vacation actually right now. He is doing what we should all be doing in the bear market, which is taking a step back, taking a quick breather. So last week we were joined by Byron, uh, and today we are joined by uh, Mr. Mike Polito, my co-founder of four years uh, and one of my longtime good buddies. So Mike, welcome to Empire. That was a very touching... Yeah. That was a very touching introduction. One of my I appreciate that. Buddies, I was, you know. <laughs> I was, was going to make a joke. I was going to say I give Mark Yusko a, a nice adjective every week, and here I am. I'm touched by that. There's your adjective. Show. Good, good buddy. Be here. Yeah. Thank I you. don't have what Mark. I don't have what Mark has, which is uh, does Mark still do the socks at the beginning of every episode? I told Mark that we will know the show has made it when the market moves, depending on what socks he shows. Mm. So if he shows bullish socks and the market goes up. That's the sign that the podcast has made it. We can quit right See, there. I don't have socks. I have hats. People send me a lot of hats because I used to wear that Blockworks hat. Here, check it out. Yeah. I wish I could be a hack. I just don't look good on my head. I got a weird shaped head. Look at my hats I have, just like that people send me. I've got, I've got Meow <laughs> sent me a hat. I've got, look at this. I've got a, the one that Pomp was pushing, 2020 Sucks hat. I've got this like superhuman send me a hat. I've got a, oh, this is a Maple Finance has a very good swag. Maple Finance is a hat I like. So I didn't know that I should be offended by not getting these hats. But now that I know I'm not getting hats, I'm offended. We get swag like every week. <laughs> Dana is very unhappy about it. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine she's not. Yeah. But what do you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't wear them inside, then she'll be yeah, fine. Exactly. Exactly. All right, man. Um, this will be a fun episode. Uh, here's what I would like to talk about. But as usual, I'm sure this will divulge into a bunch of, uh, well, we'll end up spiraling into a bunch of random topics. But here's what I'd like to cover. Down rounds, hiring freezes, layoffs. Um, that's, I think, where we should start. Optimism. Uh, like quote unquote lost 20 million OP tokens over kind of a wallet mishap with Wintermute. We should talk about that. We'll touch briefly on the um, ETH testnet merge success. I'd like to talk about the Salesforce NFT marketplace that they launched. Um, uh, and then there's one other topic that I think is interesting if you want to chat about, which is Dow treasuries um, and just how DAOs are starting oh, to yeah. respond to this bear market. So bunch of big topics. I think let's start with down rounds, layoffs, um, hiring freezes. Uh, hiring freezes at Coinbase and Gemini. Uh, Coinbase was rescinding offers. Um, BlockFi, it got announced that BlockFi recently raised at a $3 billion valuation. At one point, they were talking about getting uh, raising um, at a $5 billion valuation led by Dan Loeb before some regulatory stuff came out. And now it has come out that they are, uh, I don't think this is final, but that they're raising at a billion dollar valuation, which would be an 80% uh, discount to the $5 billion round that was considering, uh, that they considered raising, and then the $3 billion, uh, a 67% haircut to the $3 billion round. So I would like your take on just, what, what are your thoughts on these down rounds, uh, hiring freezes, rescinding offers? What's your take? Yeah. Well, maybe it would be helpful for listeners who, you know, you can kind of put you in almost what the uh, exec team at Blockworks is the discussions that we're having internally. And then like you can just extrapolate this across what I would say responsible companies, right? Uh, I don't think it takes a genius to look out at the market and say the environment, the business environment that we're going to be operating in over the next 12 to 18 months is going to look very differently from the last 12 to 18 months. So the way business planning typically works is you do forecasting. You know, I have a big problem with that phrase. It's actually target setting, right? So we say we want to be at this revenue by the end of the year. We know it's going to cost X amount to get to this revenue. So you start to kind of reverse engineer from that forecast or that target. So say you want to be a 
you know, do 40 million in revenue by the end of the year. You say, okay, I'm going to get it this way, this way, and this way through all these different product lines. I need to hire this amount of people. I need to budget this amount of GNA, and I'm going to make this much money. What companies are doing right now is they're saying, shoot, I don't know if that target that I thought I was going to get to at the end of the year is going to be 40 million. Maybe it's actually only going to be 30 million. Okay, now I got to reverse engineer my entire cost structure into fewer people, uh, you know, like less spending on GNA, all of that kind of stuff. So that's basically what's happening across the industry right now. And that's why you're starting to see things like hiring freezes happen. Uh, and what that's what that's Greek for is that we just don't know what the end of this year and the end of next year is going to look like. So what we want to do is we want to wait for our revenue baseline to reset to something where it's like, okay, I wasn't, I'm not generating four or five million dollars a month, I'm generating three million dollars a month, and then I can start to reverse engineer everything in place. So that's why everything feels so uncertain right now. That's why you keep seeing this phrase like hiring freeze, and companies are going to cut um, what variable costs they have, right? So it's like fixed and variable costs in companies. Uh, fixed cost is like infrastructure that you have. If you're a software company, you can't not build your software, right? That's like pretty important. Uh, if you have an office, that's like fixed cost, depending. And so then there's all these fixed costs, and then there are variable costs like marketing, honestly, certain lines of personnel, um, and basically any extraneous spend. So they're going to start cutting that. Uh, down rounds are, are very painful because, I mean, down, down rounds are probably going to continue to happen. I, it, it's almost, you know how I feel about BlockFi. I'm a huge fan of this company. I feel like they've gotten a lot of negative press for pretty unjustified reasons recently. Um, and so unfortunately, I feel like they're the poster child of this right now, but they're not the only ones, right? I don't want to call it any specific companies, but basically just look at any company that Tiger poured money into over the last year in crypto uh, and take a look at their valuations and how quick it took to get there. And pretty quickly, you're going to come up with a list of very richly valued companies. Um, and I think this is this is not going to be isolated to to BlockFi in general. I mean, um, I think it's important to remember it's not just isolated to crypto, right? If you just zoom out yeah. in the bigger market, um, let's look at maybe uh, the October prices of some of these companies compared to today. Instacart, $39 billion. Now they're at 22. It's almost a 50% haircut. Epic Games, 46 to 31. Chime, down from 25 billion valuation to 15 billion. GoPuff, 17 to eight, right? Klarna, 45 to 30. These are all 33 to 50, sometimes 75% haircuts. Uh, Canva, right? 40 to 27. These are all massive, massive haircuts. Um, and I think what you're starting to see is it all starts in the public markets, right? And then it just starts pulling back to the late stage, the Series D, the Series C, and eventually that trickles down uh, to the you know Series B and Series A. And then eventually, I think the seed rounds will be fine. Those will still get raised. Uh, you'll just see big haircuts on like the initial raises. Instead of the 60, 70 million dollar pre-product seed round, you'll see, you know, kind of what's normal, 10, 15, 20. Um, but I think one of the important parts here is it puts the leverage back in the in the VC's hands, right? Instead of in the founder's hands. Yep. You're seeing these insane deals go through where uh, no VCs in the entire round, nobody gets a board seat, right? The the liquidation preferences were all screwy. Basically, founders just had their pick of the litter of what VCs they wanted to invest, uh, to, to allocate into their round. And now those dynamics completely shift. Completely. And I think that's what's one of the most, like there are two very painful things about that. So think about what has to happen in terms of down rounds, uh, for down rents to actually take place, it's really violating everyone's incentives, right? Because unlike public markets, price gets set, price discovery happens in private markets just by different rounds of VC investors. And everyone wants, because they want to point to, for their next fundraise, they want to point to the unicorns that they had in their previous fundraise. They really want that valuation to keep going up. The founders really want that valuation to keep going up. The employees who are getting compensated in you know, RSUs or whatever they're getting compensated, they all want that to go up. So for there to be a down round, um, you know, it, the the business really has to change pretty materially. And the other thing too, is you were starting to talk about just, just different layers of the capital stack, right? Uh, the most investors, right? Most good VCs will insist on liquidation preferences, right? Or non-dilutive uh, kind of covenants. So when there is a down round, their equity essentially gets protected and founders and uh, employees get diluted, right? When they have to raise at a lower valuation to the effect that many, many employees actually have their, their options completely wiped out, right? Or very close to it. So yeah. that's why it's painful. And it's also painful from a psychological standpoint. Like you go to work at a startup because you feel like you're moving towards a goal and part of a team. And like, even though it's kind of hectic and all over the place, you're still like moving up to, to go through all of that at a startup and then only to have it go down 
psychologically painful. Right. No, I think I you make say. two good points there. There's the capital stack, which is founders and employees will inevitably give up more ownership. And these anti-dilution clauses that the VCs have put in mean that previous investors with preferred shares are given these increased conversion rates to avoid dilution, which ends up meaning that the owners and the employees get diluted even more. Um, and then on the confidence side and the psychology side, lower confidence, lower employee morale, lower maybe even founder morale. Um, yeah, these liquidation preferences continue to make it kind of just much harder to get to this, like to see the promised land per se, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's quite tough. I, yeah, no, yeah. I, but I think a lot of this actually happens. I don't know, like I do wonder how, uh, if maybe it's on some of the founders to blame for this actually. Um, and 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 here's 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 where I'd go with this is you were just seeing some of these rounds get raised six to 12 months ago, you just knew these were overvalued. It's like these $10 billion, I'm not gonna call anyone out, but like five, $10 billion. These companies launched products like a year or two ago, right? And I think you kind of have two options when you're raising capital uh, in, in a really like bull market. You can either do what is effectively a down round preemptively when you don't have to by just underpricing what the current round in the market is. Um, so, so let's use an example, like we, Company raises at a billion dollars. Then in November of 2021, the market's raging bull market. They get an offer to raise at 10 billion. They know that that's overvalued, mm -hmm. right? They know that that's crazy overvalued. They could preemptively, it's not technically a down round, but like they could raise, they could say, we don't want to raise at 10. We think that's overvalued. We want to actually raise at five or 6 billion, right? That's like mm -hmm. preemptively a down round kind of, maybe it shouldn't be called a down round, but like they are setting the prices lower than the highest possible price they can get to set themselves up better in the future. I don't think folks did that. I think instead folks basically just accepted the market price uh, and said, let's shoot for as high, of high, as high of a price as we can possibly get, which then risks if, you know, if you, if you don't hit your milestones or the market turns, which it did, then a lot of them are risking a down round. So I think I'd throw, turn this into a question and say, how many companies do you think will need to raise a down round here? If you have, if you have a bucket of 100 crypto companies, 10 raise a down round, 20 raise a down round. Do you have any data points to back this up? Yeah. Let me just address the first thing you yeah. said about it being, there are three, there are three stakeholders, right? There are investors, there are founders, and there are employees. I think everyone was kind of behaving a little irresponsibly, if not just maybe, maybe naively, right? So like, to walk it down, right? Like that founder example you used, I, I totally agree. I also think that's kind of a move that more experienced founders or at least second time founders would have to do. Having the discipline to not take that money at not the highest valuation. Like we're sitting here saying that, oh, obviously they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I think, you know, maybe nine months ago would have been a very different conversation. So I think, I think you're totally right, but I think that's more of a reflection of the lack of mature founders in crypto, despite how far we've come in terms of attracting talent. Um, I think there's also something to be said for investors that were throwing throwing money at these valuations, right? Like they're the ones who are supposed to be disciplined yeah. also, yeah. right? But it kind of takes two to tango, right? It takes two parties to set a valuation, a buyer and a seller, right? So there's that. And then there's the the employees who who took equity at those valuations. And you kind of can't have it both ways, right? Like a lot of the mantra in crypto is like, let people assume their own financial responsibility. If you want to assume the financial responsibility and you're taking money from like you just watch the equity of this company or these tokens, like how many times did you and I have this conversation where we lost, you know, people because they just got some like three or four million dollar token equity package and we were like, that could go down 90%. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it but has often they <laughs> could have and it has. And they and they they knew the risks yeah. too. So I think everyone is kind of complicit here. In terms of like target setting, like how many people are how many people are vulnerable to this? I, I think it's really hard yeah. to to benchmark because the, the the counter to what we're saying is that still a lot of money has come into this ecosystem i think it'll be more about dispersion and the good companies that raised at fair valuations um will, will be fine and attract most of that capital and then i think you could also do a down round or i think most founders will just try to push it off and like kind of give themselves time they'll try they'll try to grow into their valuation over time and if they can not raise for that then I think they'll prefer to do that. But what that will mean is that they're going to fire people. Yeah. I mean, the goal for everyone right now is do not raise a down round. That is the biggest yeah. goal and just survive. Yeah. Everyone's in survival mode right now. And I agree, there'll be a dispersion between good and great, maybe less focused on the valuation to determine good versus great, but the amount of basically it comes down to your margins and how much cash do you have, right? Yeah. Um, 
like someone like OpenSea, insanely high margins. They were printing hundreds of millions. Like I think they did 350 or 400 million in revenue in January of this year alone with super high margins. So like someone like that will be just fine, even though they did raise at a ridiculously high valuation. They'll be just fine. Um, and it's a good opportunity for someone like that who has a bunch of cash on hand to maybe do some acquisitions or, or scoop up really good talent. So with you on that. I like, cause just think about it from the perspective of somebody who's making that decision. You've got to, let's, let's say you are not, cause the, I think the ones that are really in trouble are these businesses that were like 10 million in ARR or whatever and raised at hundred billion dollar valuations. doesn't matter how much you cut, like you're so far off sides. It's just, yeah. there's nothing you can really do, but let's say you're an open C, a block uh, one of these exchanges that's, that generates actually a lot of revenue. Uh, and you actually do have the ability to cut costs. So you could say, all right, you know, we know this is not going to be a permanent state of affairs, right? We just need to get through the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, however long this this winter lasts. So you've got two decisions. I could either keep operating like I'm doing now and risk a down round where I have to wipe out my employees' equity, destroy morale, do all this stuff, or I could just take a cut right now, you know, trim the fat, be more disciplined and try to get there and grow into this valuation that was probably high, but I could probably grow into it in two years. You're, you're, you're choosing that every single yeah. time. Yeah. One important thing to remember is that when companies raise up rounds, there is a good round. It's a healthy market. They want to they want to get their PR out. They want to get them. They want to do marketing around it. Right. We, we, we raised it 100 million. Now we just raised it a billion. Things are going well. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of companies that raise down rounds, but they will do it incredibly quietly. And it's just important to remember, you don't have to announce your round. And when you raise a down round, you're doing everything possible not to make that known. So just important <laughs> yep. to remember that. Um, yep. We talked about the founders raising. We talked about employees, right? I think a lot of employees, their RSUs might be way underwater, but there are hiring freezes across, across the industry. So maybe they actually can't leave even though their RSUs are way underwater. We didn't talk as much about the investors. Um, there was a recent Bloomberg article, Mike Novogratz was quoted saying, there are literally 1,900 crypto hedge funds. My guess is two thirds will go out of business. Uh, seems a little exaggerated to me in terms of, I mean, I mean, I guess he'd have the numbers. They have they acquired Vision Hill. They would know the numbers. But 1,900 yeah. crypto hedge funds and 66 going out of business. Um, what are your thoughts around this? I think crypto is a very loose definition of what a hedge fund is. <laughs> That's what I think. Like this was this was it's just crazy how similar this is to, to 2018. It was like remember there were so many people that like put 10 grand in. They wound up with like five million. They're like I'm going to start a fund, you know, yeah. and then they just signed up for a crypto hedge fund. I think probably the level of professionalism in funds is has gone way up. But again, I think this will be a culling of the herd. I, I don't have enough insight to be like, is it two thirds? No, is no. it one third? Whatever. There are going to be way less. Let's put it like that. But I think the ones that are fine or that, that are good will continue to do extremely well, like the multi coins, the paradigms, the Panteras, the yeah, Parifies, whatever. I mean, they'll continue to excel, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. I think there's some... Um Everyone was talking about when Terra happened, like these funds are going to blow up, right? It it takes a lot for a fund to blow up. I think what actually just happens yeah. is that they're so underwater um, and so below their watermark that it just is going to take so much to get back there that it's better to close shop and do it, do it over again. I agree. Oh, one other thing, though, that I, I've got a prediction for you um, that I think will play out over time is that right now, like all the rage this last cycle was liquid venture. And they're like, that's the right thing to be. And you had these funds, like the three arrows of the world uh, or whatever, that it was kind of trying to play like the hedge fund game and the venture investing game at the same time. I think those are very separate skill sets. And I think those eventually will segment out and be different things over a period of time. And the reason that I think that is because like, remember that example, remember the scuff that Suzu and Kane got into? Mm. Oh, that's uh, a good example. And it that. was, yeah. th that was weird looking at that as a founder because I actually agreed with Suzu that to rehash this, this was the argument about Ethereum abandoning its users. And then that kind of led to some ad hominem attacks. And Suzu kind of implied like they were, you know, glorifying founders in the space and blah, blah, blah. And I remember actually agreeing with Suzu, but also decide at the same time, if we ever had to raise money, I would not raise it from Suzu because I think it's a very different mentality, um, a trader versus an investor. They're just yeah. super different things. And we all make fun of the VCs, all this touchy-feely bullshit. But building a company is full of touchy-feely bullshit. And sometimes what you really need more than anything is to someone to be like, I'm on your side. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm going to hold your hand. And traders are not like that. They're just not like that. So I just think these like liquid venture funds that try to do 
the hedge fund thing and the VC thing, they're either going to need to create a really strong firewall internally in the organization or they're just going to split. Because I think good founders would rather take money from VCs than hedge funds. Completely agree. Yeah. Suzu's like, yeah. what did I ever do to you, Mike? What did I, what, what uh, did I do to you? Sorry, man. I'm a stand, dude. I listen to the opinions. I agree with many of them. But I also, it's like, you know, I don't yeah. know. Um, well, there's another interesting thing on just public versus privates, uh, it, which is just the mass overweight, uh, just like the amount of capital that's flowed in and just the amount of interest that's flowed into the private markets over the last two years um, has basically yeah. made it so that the public markets are NF, uh, are are have been ignored, I think, and that the the opportunities is is it's pretty hard to lose money in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one if you allocated into like a seed or a Series A or even a Series B company. Like you probably weren't going to be underwater on your investment, and so so much capital flowed into the private side of things. Now you're I'm just looking at these private prices like Layer Zero. I really like the Layer Zero team. They don't have much, like they're pretty early stage. They raised a $3 billion valuation. I'm looking at Aave, right? Aave is like one of the best products in all of crypto. They're sitting at a 1.5 billion fully diluted. So like, would I rather invest in something that's illiquid at 3 billion that like doesn't really have many users or market share or something that like is pretty, uh, it has almost become like a utility in crypto because of how much it's used at a billion and a half. I'm taking the billion and a half all day long. So I think a lot of the interest flips back to the public side soon. Me too. I think what happened there is like twofold, which is one, everyone wanted exposure to this asset class and the way that the more institutional side of the market could get exposure. They couldn't put liquid tokens on their balance sheet, the most of them. Uh, so they got it through venture, right? So they can buy equity in a startup that happens to be in crypto. That's just a much safer way for them to do it. At the same time that was happening, the way that the public side of crypto, the liquid token side was growing its user base was by issuing equity, right, to the public. And now that's completely flipped, right? Because that's essentially continuous sell pressure on mm. each one of those networks because the way that they grow is by bringing more supply of their equity online. So they're basically just, you know, there's a continuous sell bid. So at the same time, there's that dynamic going on in, in public crypto markets. There was this like bottleneck effect going on in private private markets. And eventually so someone will try to close that spread or somehow those things will, will move together. But now I agree, it's huge dislocation. Yeah, I mean, end of the day, it's market and we'll find the equilibrium. There's one other thing that yeah. people don't talk about with private versus public. Hmm. There is one of the reasons people love to do privates is the ego. It's just the ego play of saying, I got in that deal. You get your, oh, we just raised a series A. We just raised a seed, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. Like you're in it and you're, your name's on Twitter. Uh, it's, I can tell you from just being in all these group chats with all these angels, ego move there. And even mm -hmm. on the venture side, these big professional venture funds, talking to some of the GPs there, it's like when they aren't in a deal, even if it's a bad deal, they're getting texts from their LPs saying, why weren't we in that deal? What's up with that? Yeah. When you buy something on the public markets, like it's not sexy. No one knows. Like I'm not, no one's, if I buy Ave, like I guess it's on chain, but, but nobody knows. So you could tweet it. I'd like it. <laughs> My, my tweets are hurting these days. <laughs> Your tweets are hurting. I'm struggling Your tweets on are Twitter right now. I've been here. I'm, I, this is where I, I feel like living. you right now. This is where yeah, I've been living. I feel like you. Uh, all right, let's get past some of this. Um, let's talk about. So we talked about founder invest founders, investors, and employees, and the kind of response to the bear market. There's a fourth bucket, which is DAOs. Right now, there are yeah, a bunch of proposals great. from different DAOs like Lido and Fay and Frax. Um, that talk about their response to the bear market. And so let me just run through a couple of these. Lido has a proposal for the Dow to sell $17 million of ETH to quote, prepare for the bear market. Uh, the Fade Dow has a proposal to sell off little over 2 million in uh, Curve, Convex, Tokamak, Aave, um, and Compound in exchange for stable coins. Uh, and then there's a Frax proposal by uh, Sam, who started Frax, to buy, I think it's to buy up to $20 million worth of Frax kind of a show of confidence, um, but this is just this is just Dow starting to prep for the bear market. Um, what's your, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that Dow's were just behind here and many companies were behind. Actually, a lot of companies did a pretty good job of this. So in general, like when valuations are high, 
that's when you want to raise capital. And then when valuations are low, that, that should get you through the the less good phases, right, of the business cycle. So actually, do you, do you remember, like, we actually talked about this when Coinbase, you know, for all the flack that they're getting recently, remember like six months before, sometime last year, they raised a billion and a half dollars in debt. And you and I at that time were like, damn, that's like signpost, right, that we may be near the top. Because uh, good companies, like well-run companies that understand financing will like sell at the top. I think what's happening with, with DAOs is that they're just newer organizations. I mean, DAOs are... You and I are both very bullish on it, but they've got a lot to figure out, right? They're like not only trying to build and ship products, but they're literally reinventing the wheel of how companies and governance should work. I personally think they're trying to reinvent it too much. But uh, so they've just, you know, as, as a result, uh, because they're kind of immature organizations, they probably don't think as much about like financing, right? Um, so I just think they're kind of late to the boat here. And they'll eventually they'll realizing like, oh shit, we can't have all of our treasuries either in our native token or things that are correlated 95% to our native token, yeah. you know? So I think you're gonna continue to do this. What do you think about the Frax, the Frax buy? Well, just one one comment there. I, I just got such flashbacks to 2017, or actually really early 2018, when all the ICOs mm -hmm. were selling off their ETH, saying, oh right. shit, right. we might be going into a down market, ETH isn't up only, uh, and we need to pay for things. Um, it's gonna mm. have pretty negative, I think it'll have a pretty negative impact on the market actually, um, just because a yeah. lot of these, uh, a lot of these DAOs have they they have um, their treasuries are primarily like USDC, ETH, and then their native token. So if you're selling off a bunch of your native token and they're like maybe isn't that much liquidity in the market for it, like this will have a pretty negative um, pressure downwards. So that's that's something to just keep in mind there. I think this is a call. We have an episode coming out. Um, I, I had a really interesting episode with um, Tom and Hasib from Dragonfly. Um, and it comes yeah. out this Monday. So in a couple of days, they talked about just one of the things that they're most excited about in the bear market is better capital market tools for DAOs, like convertible bonds, for example. And that's one thing, yeah. like you mentioned Coinbase. Coinbase, yeah, they raised, I think they raised $2 billion, actually. Um, they announced like a billion and a half debt round, and then they increased it to just a debt offering of $2 billion. And this was back in September of 2021. Um, that you can't do that if you're a def like a protocol. You can't raise debt if you're a protocol right now. There's just no real way, I would say. But I think that's something that really gets built out in this bear market. I completely agree with you, especially because some of these organizations will have been around now for like a couple of years, right? In the beginning, it makes a lot of sense to take venture or, or sorry, like equity type funding, right? That's why venture is done in, in equity. But then after they get big enough and it's all like it probably makes sense to do some debt financing, yeah. like that should be available to yeah. them. I'd yeah, say. I agree. And um, um, oh man, I mean, you'll have to listen to the episode on Monday. But Tom was talking about Tom Schmidt at Dragonfly was talking about how it's actually a really, really efficient debt system because if you're uh, if you're a DAO and you've got you're basically spitting off fees, you can use those fees to directly go back and pay back the the debt issuance. So you, there's really no mm -hmm. like debt middleman here, um, and it just creates a very efficient debt system. Yeah, I agree. The Frax thing. So at the same time that, right, you've got Lido and Faye talking about diversifying their treasuries. I think, what was it that uh, Sam, they just did a $20 million buy of the native Frax token. Um, here, here's what I'll caveat this by saying. Every, Sam knows his business much better than I do, right? I, I'm not an expert on Frax. Like there are probably dynamics of running a stable coin like that where maybe where confidence is like a much more important thing that I'm giving credence. Uh, there, there might be some like kind of reserve aspect here that I'm saying, but I think the framework to be looking at buys of tokens by their own protocol should be the same framework that uh, shareholder buybacks are looked at in public markets. And that is, it's a capital allocation decision. So companies have three decisions when it comes to alloc capital allocation, invest in your own organic growth. So like build products and services internally, buy it, M&A, buy a company, or something that can do that thing for you, or C, door number three, return capital to shareholders. And the way they do that is by share buybacks. So they'll buy back some of their shares, they'll jack up the price, you know, in theory of the of the existing shares, and it's a tax efficient way to return capital. In general, when you are buying shares of a company, what you're saying is, I don't have a better use. I can't put this capital to work in my own organization and generate returns above what I think I can get in the market for my own shares. So like when I see, you know, uh, whatever protocols that are doing this, again, it might be different again, because Frax is a stable coin and they're like reserve and confidence things that, that might 
come into play that I'm not understanding. What you're saying to investors is I'm giving you some money back because I can't be- otherwise better spend this on products and services. I, I think it's pretty, pretty, um, pretty early in the crypto ecosystem for any companies to be saying that, right? I think most of these protocols should be like, okay, could I take that X million dollars and hire developers and like ship X many more uh, features this year? Like, that's how I'd be thinking about it. I I don't know as much about Frax, like just this this specific $20 million buyback, I'll be honest. So I don't want to talk yeah. about that too much, but I completely agree with you. When I see companies in crypto buying back their own token, there's so many other things that you should be spending that on. Stop worrying about the price of your token. Um, and I think yeah. maybe one of the triggers, like psychologically for Frax is uh, FX, FXS just fell out of the top 100 on CoinGecko. Right, so now it's no longer a top 100 coin. Like if I'm running Frax, that's a psychologically that would kind of suck to see, you know. I know, I know. It's just no, like, no. I'm agreeing with you. I don't think that I'm saying that should not be a reason <laughs> that that you buy back your shouldn't token. Shouldn't be, dude. Yeah, it's like if Amazon yeah, price falls like 30 percent. Like I don't think Bezos is stepping in and and buying the token, the, the Amazon stock back up. He's he's investing in AWS, you know. So no. Maybe personally, right? Sometimes you see this with uh, executives or CEOs or founders at, at times when their company is struggling. They're like, I'm personally buying more equity or whatever, or I'm increasing my stake or taking more stock-based compensation or whatever. But I do not think it should happen at the comp- at the company or the protocol. Yeah. I mean, Fred Ersham, like Fred just did this. He purchased a million dollars of Coinbase. Uh, the Coinbase co-founder purchased a million shares of Coinbase a couple of weeks ago um, when he saw, yeah. it, saw it going down in the open market, right? Quit. Should have bought that. Saw it go down. It went to $42 at one point. I was also sitting there being like, I should buy this, but I bought the dip too early on some other stuff. And I was feeling not good about that. <laughs> Classic. Classic you. Classic um, you. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I do think uh, like Dow treasury management was an area that you and I were talking about is, is being pretty obviously immature um, in crypto. I, I don't know how this translates to uh, I, I'm not sure if it translates because like the dynamic in 2018 was ETH, the ICOs all raised in ETH, some in Bitcoin, but mostly in ETH. And then they had to sell that to fund their operations. I don't really think that's the case here. I know most of these tokens, uh, they these protocols have treasuries in their native tokens, ETH and USDC. I think the overwhelming majority, it's in their native token, right? Or other tokens like i don't think it so i don't think it's like people are exclusively fire sailing eth like they were back then so i'm less i'm less confident that it leads to decrease in like price negative price uh movement for eth but it it definitely will for the native tokens as they diversify their treasuries empire is brought to you by bitmex with the launch of their spot exchange bitmex is running an insane promo right now we wanted to give you the inside scoop Here's the deal. For the next two months, users who trade $250 worth of crypto on BitMEX's spot exchange will be entered into their million dollar giveaway. Prizes range from thousands of dollars all the way up to $500,000. That's right. Trade 250 bucks on BitMEX for a chance to personally win $500,000. Beyond the million dollar giveaway, new users can also get up to 200 BMEX, B-M-E-X, that's BitMEX's new token coming soon, just by creating an account and going through KYC and trading. So you can actually get BitMEX tokens just by creating an account and trading. The more you trade, the higher your chances of winning. What are you waiting for? Go to BitMEX.com today, sign up for an account, B-I-T-M-E-X.com. I don't know if there's much to talk about here, but one interesting data point that I saw was just um, May was the first month ever where FTX passed Coinbase um, in terms of their spot volume. FTX had higher spot volume for BTC and ETH than Coinbase in May. Um, I don't know. It's really interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about that. I also I know you sent me um, SBF's tweet about hiring. I don't know if you want to talk about that or we can move past this one. No, I um, I mean... If you you want to run down the the I mean the the numbers here I guess because they they are interesting right and everyone talks about Coinbase versus FTX and really the gorilla in the room that eight hundred pound gorilla is still Binance which is just quietly dominating it might it might actually be worth I haven't heard anyone talk about this but you know Sam has become like practically the face of crypto over the last year have you heard CZ do like any public appearances or talks or anything like that 
I don't know if that's significant or not, but like there's an enormous difference in the PR that's going on between. Well, it's got to be because of the Coinbase. SEC, because they're. I mean, Binance is facing two different things right now, right? Uh, the SEC launched a probe, like this investigation against the BNB token, examining whether right. the sale of their token in the they did an ICO, right? People forget Binance did yeah. an ICO of BNB five years yeah, ago. Five years ago. Um, <laughs> five years ago. A measly fifteen million, right? Which back then seemed like a lot, and today seems like nothing. Um, but yeah, so the SEC is looking into BNB, and um, on Monday, a Reuters investigation. Oh no, that was Reuters. That's not SEC. What's this note here? Reuters investigation posited Binance has. Pro- oh no, that's fluff. That's nothing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think they're they're probably worried about that. I think you know, FTX is is an example of a, a really just a super fast up and comer that's taken some big swings and risks, but also uh, executed pretty well. I think. Coinbase, I mean, the, so the actual numbers here, so the, the story, right, uh, is that for the first time, uh, FTX did more volume than Coinbase in in May. Um, I think it was for, for higher spot volume for Bitcoin and ETH. So it was like 30 versus 28 billion for Bitcoin, 21 versus 18 for ETH. Um, you know, at one point, I'm pretty sure FTX uh, at their last private market valuation round, again, we're talking about huge dislocations there between private and public markets at the moment. So take it with a grain of salt actually surpassed Coinbase's as well. I don't know if you had to do like some kind of SWOT or breakdown analysis for the two businesses. I think FTX, they would define themselves as they want to be, they almost view themselves more as like a payment company. They just want to sit in the middle of transactions like all over the world. Uh, and, you know, they also in FTX US, I think rolled out um, stock trading. I don't know if you saw yeah. that this week too. Ooh, I, I disagree um, with that, that take on what FTX wants to be. I think FT, okay. yeah, I know they have those business lines, right? They, I know they have all the right. business lines and stuff like that. FTX, I think, is just going after the institutional crypto market and the they want to win the institutional crypto market and they want to win um, the trader market. That's mm. what I think. And I think Coinbase mm. will own the, the the retail market. Like, look at all the stuff that that FTX is doing with the, with the CFTC. And they spent, they spent yeah. I think, $1.1 billion um, acquiring just uh, just licenses last year, right? And they're really, really, really yeah. trying to um, push that forward with the regulators. I mean, I'm sure obviously Coinbase is trying to do the same thing, but. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that, for, so for me, FTX, when I think about them, I guess I will stay in my, like I, I, what I, how I view the business is like Sam's background, right? He was at Jane Street. That guy thinks in terms of markets. By the way, if you haven't heard Sam talk about markets, like it's literally like listening to, I don't know, Beethoven talk about music. I've never heard him talk about music. That's a weird example. But like, the guy just knows it, you know? Like, he listens to someone in their element. You know, like, you you know really what's the best episode it. on that is Sam talking on, um, well, he did come on Empire, so you should listen to that. But a really good one was that. <laughs> That's the best episode. <laughs> it was uh, with, in, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy <laughs> of Invest Like the Best, which yeah. we can sh- throw in the show notes. I agree. Uh, plug another good podcast yeah. in here. But that was a really good episode. Yeah, it was phenomenal. But he's a markets-focused guy. So I, I would imagine him... You know, like Jane Street makes their money by providing liquidity in markets, right? And fixing inefficiencies. I would guess that that's kind of the lens through which Sam views the world in general, right? So he wants to solve that for crypto markets. He obviously wants to move into stock market, the stock market. He wants to do that for derivatives. He's probably going to move into payments, uh, right? And he probably sees like the, this push into uh, gaming and NFTs is like, there's going to be native fi- like DeFi is going to interact with those those digital assets, right? There are going to be transactions that need to take place there. I bet FTX sees an enormous market for transactions there. Whereas I would say for Coinbase, I think the way that they look at the world is that they actually want to be more than just an exchange. They want to be the gateway through which people come into crypto, mm-hmm. right? So there's a there's a, a legacy exchange business, but they you know uh, they they want to get involved with um, you know. The, like be a wallet, basically. Uh, they want, you know, they're moving into NFTs. I think they want to be the way they describe it is like facilitating people's journey into open finance. So I almost view them as like a conduit for capital to come into crypto. Whereas I almost see FTX wanting to burst out of crypto and actually stand in the middle of all these different transactions. I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive, but I do see them as like different, yeah, different businesses. Yeah. The number of employees is very different at each of those companies too. That what are the say. numbers these days? Do we know? I think I heard Coinbase got up to 5,000, somewhere around there. Um, and then, uh, let's see. I don't know what off the top of my head. 250 for, is the last number I heard for FTX. For F- 300. I would bet they're around yeah. 300 now. I would bet Coinbase is, 
I think that this number is actually public, like four or five thousand, super like very roughly ballpark. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I think Binance is more like six or seven thousand. Crypto.com's like three thousand, and then FTX is around three hundred. I could be. I'm, those are ballpark numbers, but yeah. Uh, the other thing I'll just add on the Coinbase thing is they uh, folks probably know they rescinded a bunch of job offers recently. I would check out the. Uh, there's there's actually a they they set up a resource for basically everyone whose job offer they rescinded. Maybe we can we'll link that in the show, the show notes. notes. Yeah, I have that actually. Yeah, so obviously we talk about this in a pretty dispassionate way, but like these are real humans and people that lost their jobs in some case gave up great other opportunities to sign with a company that they were really excited about and then kind of had the rug pulled from under them. Many are like young people in their career. So if, if anyone's listening to this and hiring, I'd highly recommend you check it out. There's some great talent there. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Cynthia Lummis, you want to talk about this bill? Yeah. I feel like you know the ins and outs a little bit better than me. You want to lead it? Good luck to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no good luck to me. Yeah. Basically, um, Senator Lummis and Senator Gillibrand uh, announced the Responsible Financial Innovation Act. This was a basically a 69-page bill. Is that a meme? I don't know. I don't know if that was on purpose. A little 69-page bill creating a uh, basically trying to create a regulatory framework for crypto. And overall, I think this has been viewed as a very positive piece of legislation. Um, I took some notes on it. Let me just pull up some of these notes here. Uh, the first is that um, it clears up a lot of the securities laws and I think puts a lot of uh, crypto assets as commodities under the CFTC. And this has been a big, uh, just a big topic of conversation is like, should crypto get regulated by the CFTC or the SEC or should something new get created? And generally the CS, the, the SEC is seen as much more, uh, just a much stricter place that comes down on securities where the CFTC is what regulates commodities, right? And they're seen as a little more um, relaxed. And so I think this bill would put crypto assets under, uh, categorize them as commodities under the CFTC. Um, there are also new disclosure requirements that would make uh, anonymously run projects almost impossible to com comply under this law. So I can run through some of what I like. What I think is it. So it basically, I mean, one, one of the interesting things about it is that it lets taxpayers in many circumstances they're exempt uh, right from like capital gains type income tax when a crypto is used to buy a good or a service. I have I view this as like largely a symbolic victory, just because my yeah. my I think Bitcoin is. I know ETH is ultrasound money. I, I'm not sure. For me, it feels more like a commodity. Bitcoin's really the money that we're creating here. And I don't think it's the type of money that you spend on small purchases. I think this is maybe a more symbolic victory and a, like a foot in the door potentially um, for something larger later. Because I, like, I don't know how many people are buying stuff worth less than $200 in, in Bitcoin. But um, it puts most crypto under the purview of the CFTC, but it does leave broad oversight for an array uh, like for, for SEC oversight, including tokens that provide a kind of a financial interest. And it gives courts uh, this this procedure to, to rebut the, the, the assumption that that tokens are commodities, which I think is almost like, I think about it almost as like innocent until proven guilty. So the presumption is that it's a commodity, but you can always challenge that as well. And to be honest, that makes complete sense because in my view, many of these tokens are equity. They're actually having to bend over backwards and behave in weird ways to not fit the definition of a Howey test. And I think that, um, which we can get into a little bit, but I do think it makes sense for the SEC to be involved. I don't think it makes sense to, but but the yeah. CFTC has been largely much more favorable. So yeah, I, there's something so. else that was, um, I think a misinterpretation by some folks, which is, I think a lot of people thought that it requires DAOs to be registered entities in the United States. I think my understanding and what I saw from folks like Adam Cochran and, and Jake Travinsky, um, who have good insights into this, is that there are tax incentives for DAOs if you register in the United States, but it but you're not required to actually register in the United States. Um, so that was one yeah. one thing that I saw. Um, also just bipartisan bill. Uh, feels like it's pretty rare to see those these days. So that's a, I, agree. Yeah, I think that's a win. Um, there's some increased reporting and compliance on exchanges, which would increase their cost. But in general, I don't think that's too bad of a thing. Um, oh, there's one issue that I saw, which was uh, it tries to make AMMs, it kind of restricts specific, it tells AMMs that they might have to restrict specific token tokens from trading, which is kind of what like, like what we saw with uh, Uniswap, if you remember, right? The Uniswap front end delisted a bunch of tokens maybe right. six months ago, but the protocol didn't delist anything, right? So they're trying to require something that maybe isn't possible um, and that isn't really DeFi, right? So 
that's that's one thing from this. But I think the the general sentiment is like this bill is overwhelmingly positive. Um, yeah, I would agree with you. I think what we've been suffering from for a long time in crypto is just too many regulators and regulatory bodies like trying to. It's like that elephant thing, right? Like five blind guys touch an elephant. One touches the trunk. One touches the tail. The and everyone says it's a different thing. I think the the <laughs> the most encouraging part. <laughs> did you I get that right? No, yeah, you did. You just love. You, you like that one. I know you like that one. I like that. I use that one a lot, just like my muffin joke. Uh, but, you know, I like I think the best part about it is that it's pretty holistic. Right. I mean, there's a whole there's now there's a process to apply for, uh, you know, like digital asset exchanges and actually tries to give some definition as to what that is. There are safeguards for consumers crypto in the event that that those exchanges go bankrupt. Like these are good, necessary things. Right. I feel like sometimes in crypto, we're like, we don't like the regulators, but like some amount of regulation is is good. And. I'd be curious. This is one that I don't have an enormous amount of conviction in, so I almost want listeners to tell me why I might be wrong about this. But I think one of the biggest things we're getting hamstrung up about is that we just don't call many of these tokens securities. I almost wish we could just call them securities because <laughs> it makes you behave in really <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to get roasted, but but so tell me why I'm wrong. So here here's my thinking behind this. Right, people are like DAOs are very dysfunctional. A lot of the reasons why DAOs are dysfunctional is because the founder, the founders of the, the protocols can't be seen to have undue influence on what's going on in the protocol. Otherwise, you're making an investment with someone else doing the work with an expectation of return. So that means founders have to step out of the arena way too early, like way, way, way too early and, and rely on this community of people. I think there should be a road to decentralization, but like I think you and I both agree in the beginning of a small thing, you need someone with a freaking vision, you know, and you need someone to push it forward and accountability. The buck has to stop with one or two people, I think. Um, and then there's also this weird stuff about, you know, now that there are actually somewhat mature protocols out there, right? Like like a Uniswap or something like that. You know, the, the criticism of DeFi is that it's very circular because all the rewards are generated in their native tokens. When in reality, they could just convert that to USDC and literally start dividending. But if they did that, then it would be, you know, for an expectation of profit or whatever to fit the Howey test. So let me let me show you and maybe for listeners, sorry, because this is uh, I'm going to sh- share my screen about something. Let me show you the the application to basically have your tokens um, in the right get get reggae exemption. And I think I'll show you why everything can't be a security. Let me just show you this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, the current framework just doesn't make sense. Uh, this guy, Jeremy Hogan posted this, the, the, even just the form that you fill in to become a security, it doesn't apply to these tokens. Like it doesn't actually make sense, right. For these tokens. Yeah. Um, so I think like that's, I think that's the big pushback on why they shouldn't be tokens or why they shouldn't, these tokens shouldn't be securities is because like the securities test was built in what, 1934 with Howie or something like that? Like 1946. And do you know what it was for? Oranges or something? Orange farms? Large tracts of Florida land that he built. Yeah. He planted oranges yeah, on. There you go. So I think I agree with, I think what ultimately needs to happen, the best case scenario for crypto, our version of a soft landing for this is that eventually we say, look, this, this is a really old understanding of what constitutes a security. Crypto is big enough and it's not this dirty thing anymore. It's a big enough new industry that we want a piece of it. We will literally reconsider how we think about securities laws in the United States. Because in other countries, it's different. By the way, it's not like the how we test is the universally accepted way to classify a security. Like in the UK, it's done very differently. In China, it's done very differently. Like it's it's not like we have the only answer here. So I the, I think the best case scenario is it would make us reconsider our securities laws and accredited investor rules, which are ridiculous yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I know this probably isn't that big of news. I just want to talk about, or anything else on the on Lemus. I want to get into, a, okay. No. Uh, Salesforce launched an NFT platform uh, called NFT a new, basically, a, a new minting and sales platform called NFT Cloud. Pilots start this week, and it's expected to be widely available by October 2020, 2022, this year. Um, there's a quote from it that I found pretty funny, which is, NFT Cloud does not support energy-wasting proof-of-work blockchains, um, resulting in 99% fewer emissions. I could not find anywhere in a single press release, anywhere on their website, what blockchain this is built on. And I saw some speculation that this is built on like VeChain. I can't find a single place where where Salesforce mentions what blockchain that they that they support. And you got to imagine, you know, every single like 
web two partnership with a crypto company, the crypto company publicizes the hell out of it, right? Like if Avalanche does a partnership with someone or, or Solana or Polygon, like you, you see that thing plastered all over Twitter. If yeah. Salesforce had partnered with someone like Polygon or Avalanche or Solana on this, that would be a huge splash, right? Polygon would be pushing the hell out of that news. Because they're not, I'm just, I just wonder if like, they're even storing these NFTs on a blockchain or if like the NFTs, the NFTs are basically stored in that, in some database run by Salesforce, aka they're not NFTs. So I don't know. I'm skeptical of this one. I have more positive views on it, but I'm very skeptical on this one. Give me the positive views before I give you my also negative views. <laughs> Salesforce is the largest CRM platform. Um, if you're a Fortune 500 CMO and you see this news, you pay closer attention to NFTs. Um, it will bring, it brings more credibility. Like I just really try to remove yourself from crypto, put yourself in the shoes of like uh, someone who's been a CMO for 20 years. And like, you see this news dropping, you're like, oh shit, maybe I got to take these NFT things more seriously. Um, I don't know. That's my positive view. I just like, you know, how many times have we seen this before? How many times have you seen this? Like, <laughs> this is like, be like, oh, Bank of America is doing a proof of concept. Uh, this company's doing, remember the strawberries on the blockchain from Walmart? No, no, no. It was like, mangoes. It was mangoes. It was IBM and Walmart. I remember that, of course. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have anything constructive to add to this. I And I don't have anything constructive to add to the... If you don't have anything nice to say, Michael, don't say it at all. <laughs> you sound like my Nana. My Nana said that to me. That's what my mother yeah. would tell me. You're channeling her energy right now. <laughs> RIP Nana. Um, I, but like, I think just on the energy debate, I mean, people should follow the work of Nick Carter uh, on this, who's done a lot of good, I think, standing up to... If, if the expectation for a new industry is that it doesn't consume energy... We're just not going to create any new industries. I don't know. It's a it's a completely arbitrary way to meet out which industry should should be allowed to use energy and which ones should not be. I've stopped I've stopped talking to folks about the energy debate because it's such a ridiculous debate in my mind. It's such a ridiculous conversation yeah. in my mind. Uh, you need energy to verify the blockchain, just like you need energy to run Google services or app. like it's it's a completely ridiculous debate in my mind. So I don't think we need to. Even yeah, but well, I think it gets at the heart of the you know if they if you view crypto as this speculative thing with no value, then any amount of energy spent on it is a waste. And I think I think that's the unsaid thing. Right, that's what it comes down to. It's there's no energy debate. It's whether or not you believe this stuff is valuable. If you don't think it's valuable, then of course it's wasting too much energy. If you think it's incredibly right. valuable, there's no amount of energy that it could use that that won't be worth it. Right. So it all just comes down to do you think this stuff is valuable or not. Exactly. Yeah. And I have been surprised. I have, I will admit, I feel like I'm usually on the more pessimistic side of this thing, but I, I thought after this last bull market that we brought more people over that had fully gone. But I think many people who like dipped their toes and got in in this cycle just kind of were like, yeah, I believe in it. Here's my money. Please go up. Please go up. And now that it's gone down, they're like, I knew this was a freaking scam. You know, like I like all the people that I talk to in my life, you know, for the last 18 months, I got used to this. I was like, oh, you work in crypto. Oh, it's very cool. And now they're like crypto. Well, you knew it was going to come down, didn't you? Like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it's like, all right, man. All right. Well, and my and ultimately, like for folks who do have this is why you can't borrow someone else's conviction. Uh, so what I'll say is thanks for two more years of Head Start. Yeah. You know, yeah. before everyone else uh, comes back yeah. in. So um, I forget if it was Olaf or Vance from Framework who said this to me. We will know, he, one of them said, we will know we're on, we are in a bear market when people start talking about enterprise blockchain again. And this is the enterprise blockchain we were waiting for. This is. <laughs> yeah, it is. I saw someone tweeting, like someone from IBM being like, finally, we can get rid of this Web3. Now it's time for the adults in the room to build. <laughs> like IBM. Like come on. I, I so I don't know. I, I I think enterprise blockchain will make it come back as well. Um, oh, you tweeted this. There are three eventualities in this world. Death, taxes, yeah. bear markets, renewing interest in enterprise blockchain. We are back, baby. Yeah. We're back. I yeah, with a retweet. Uh, you know what is one that really gets me too? I, it's just the the NFT medical records one. It's like I, I just don't understand why we can't view NFTs for what they are 
right now. I actually, what I would say, because I know it's a, and me, you disagree with me a little on this, is that the NFT profile picture projects are like overvalued. And I agree, most of them are. But what I would say is like a thought experiment to those of you who are listening to this. Let's say you had $10,000 to spend. Would you rather do it in a totally hypothetical scenario? Say you could buy a suit with that money or say you had to spend that money on a suit or you had to spend it on like a sick profile picture that everyone thought was really cool and it was across like your Twitter and Instagram and all your socials. For me, it's actually a pretty easy decision. I would spend the $10,000 on a profile picture that made me look cool. And like, because what am I going to do? I'm going to wear a suit like two times a year. I don't need a $10,000 suit. It's less about how many times you'll wear it. It's more about who the people that you want to see you as being cool. Like who, what do they value? Right. Right. And how many people see you? Yeah. Right. Like how many times is your Well, like I could wear a Rolex. I don't own a Rolex because I have no, I don't have interest in a Rolex. But if I wore a Rolex around New York, like thousands of people will see me on the streets. But I don't care what any of those people think. And even like if I went Mm -hmm. and hung out with all my friends and I wore a Rolex, my friends would be like, why the hell are you wearing a Rolex? Like you douche, like take that thing off. Uh, You know, I agree. It would make me look less cool. I'd be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed to wear a Rolex. I would be like super embarrassed about it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe the framework is just that younger generations don't like doing what older generations thought was cool, but everyone needs like something to spend money on when they have too much money. And maybe that'll like, maybe that'll be a big part of profile picture that's, NFTs that's exactly for right. us. Um, you know, yeah, maybe we'll do an, I don't know. Uh, I, I saw Meltem. I was going to talk about healthcare on the blockchain. I Meltem also tweeted something about it. Like if anyone else pitches me yeah. healthcare data on the blockchain this week, I will lose it. Please stop doing this shit. Um, I saw a couple companies this uh, this month got funded, healthcare healthcare data on the blockchain. So we are back. They did last. Yeah, yeah, we're back. Um, One day that'll work, and you and I will just be wrong about it because it's been wrong. Yeah, so like decentralized times. social. Uh, you know, yeah, we're be wrong. Totally. Yeah, yeah well, but I'm okay with yeah. that. Um, I'll take the under. Anything else to talk about here? Um, optimism. optimism. Yeah, optimism partnered. So optimism did this big airdrop. We've talked about it a bunch on the podcast they lost 20 million OP tokens. Um, here's kind of what happened and I wasn't, I didn't actually participate in it. So I, this is secondhand obviously. Basically Optimism partnered with Wintermute. Wintermute is one of the biggest market makers in the space. Market makers provide liquidity. So Optimism partnered with Wintermute to provide liquidity services, like basically buy, sell, creating a market for the OP token. Um, and they, uh, it basically turned out that Wintermute couldn't access the multi-sig wallet where the tokens were sent. The wallet was on an L1, as I understand it, and needed to, but it needed to be deployed on an L2. Um, and I'm not fully sure of the specifics here. Obviously, I don't work at Wintermute. I'm not at Optimism. Um, but this just shows me that like one of the most, you've got Optimism, like one of the best tech teams in the industry. You've got Wintermute, one of the best trading firms in the industry. Uh, they like they're still having this stuff is still so complicated that they're still having issues with it. Oh, and there's a second there's a second part here, which is that um, Wintermute started a, rec- a recovery operation to kind of gain access to the wallet. But before they could do that, an attacker was able to recover the wallet first. They gained access to the 20 million OP tokens. Now, Wintermute has committed to buying these like quote unquote stolen tokens um, as they're sold by the attacker's wallet. Um, and I think Opt- uh, Optimism made another short-term grant of 20 million OP tokens to Wintermute. But man, still like, um, we how long have we been doing this? Five, six years, however long it's been. I still feel cautious when I'm sending a crypto transaction. Like I still send my like little $10, $100 test transaction first. If Wintermute and Optimism are still doing this, yeah, we need some improvements around UI, UX. I'll say that. Yeah. Someone made this analogy a long time ago. I think it's pretty apt. If you think about uh, manufacturing and shipping hardware products versus software products, there's a lot that you can learn for crypto. So in a software product, you're, that's the Reed Hoffman. If your product, if you aren't more like horribly embarrassed about your product when you ship it, you've waited too long because the incentive is you can ship something out, get users using it, collect bugs, and then just pass a, like, you know, uh, update the code, right? And like pass out an update and it will fix it. With hardware or something that you're selling that's like a good out in the real world, it's the exact opposite incentive, right? Let's say you manufacture $6 million cars. There's 6 million cars, right? You want to make sure that those cars, when they arrive at their owners, when people buy them, there's not a deficiency with the brake. Otherwise, you're going to have to recall and fix 6 million 
individual cars, right? And that's going to be enormously costly. So crypto is very interesting in that it actually, even though it, it is software, it behaves more like hardware mm. in terms of how you th need to think about shipping stuff because you need to go and battle test and make because sure that there aren't bugs involved. so people don't lose yeah, all their money. money involved, right, yeah. right. Um, and we didn't talk about the the Robston uh, testnet merge, um, but you know that's why Ethereum is taking so much time in its in the merge in its transition from yeah. proof of work to proof of stake. That's why multiple testnets are being used. They could actually ship this basically today, but they don't want to put hundreds of billions of dollars at risk and risk the trust of the network. Yeah. So, ooh, this is interesting. This just happened live while we were recording. Um, the Ape DAO just voted against Yuga Labs wishes Ape to remain on Ethereum for now. This is interesting, um, actually, I think, because Yuga Labs wanted to move, well, from my understanding, Yuga Labs wants to move onto their own blockchain or L2 or whatever it may be, like create their own L2 or L1 or whatever it might be. The community basically overwhelmed the creators. Um, corporate, like, sell, oh, ooh, this is really interesting. I need to think this one through, but this is just interesting to see the community, yeah, overrule what, like, the, the execs want to do, you know? So... That, that interview that you did with Vance, I thought was really interesting here because there are kind of like two things. That I think the, the, the prevailing framework for L1s is that people won't interact on the L1s. It's too expensive. So the natural customers of L1s are other blockchains. That could be layer two blockchains if you went through like the, the, the kind of vision of like, by the way, Ben Jones, founder of Optimism. I didn't mean that to sound negative about Optimism at all. Like that the team that's building that and that community is like amazing. They're great. But like the, you, you could, one vision of the future is that there's L1s. There are L2s that interact and borrow the security mm -hmm. from L1s and buy block space essentially from those L1s and that applications will launch on each individual L2. There's another kind of vision of the future actually where you, you, you don't necessarily need that, um, where each kind of project has its own app specific chain. That's where you're getting app chains from. And then they kind of plug into uh, like and borrow security from the same thing. That's like the Cosmos SDK model. So I just, you know, I think a lot of people viewed it as heresy. I think Yuga Labs has come under a bunch of criticism for being too money grabby, which there might be some legitimacy to that, or they're just really good about financing. They knew they needed to grab as much money as they could to get through the next bear market. Those are the two interpretations. Um, I think a lot of people viewed it through an ideological lens of like, do they support Ethereum or do they not? And I actually don't know the best, um, what the best technical way to do it is. Because dude, can you imagine if you and I were building one of these chains and it was like, oh yeah, I know you want to do this and you have the motivation and you got the team, but due to technical problems with Ethereum, you're just going to have to wait a year to do what you want to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, come on, there's some legitimacy to that viewpoint too. That would suck. So ideologically, these guys might be very associate, like very on the same page as, as the Ethereum community, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I understand people's point of view. Yeah, no, I do too. I mean, Yuga wants to do it for a couple of reasons, right? One is it actually then provides a use case for Ape. Like state, it becomes a staking and a gas token now instead of almost yeah. this like kind of worthless token um, that doesn't have utility. Um, <laughs> it also creates, uh, I mean, they raised $450 million at a $4 billion valuation. There's nothing in the world more valuable if all this stuff works. There's going to be nothing more valuable than a layer one, than owning the, the L1. So... Got to do something to fill into that valuation. Uh, okay. Another benchmark for you here. Yuga Labs valuation is the valuation that Disney acquired Lucasfilm for. So at the end of the day, I know there are some differences or whatever. They have a different revenue model, internet, whatever. They're both in the game of building IP and communities, right? That's what Lucasfilm was in the game of. That's what Yuga Labs is in the game of. Yuga Labs, to justify that $4 billion, you can either say that Star Wars valuation was wrong or the Lucasfilm, which included Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all of that like monumental IP that got built. Or Yuga Labs is just like, like theoretically, Yuga Labs would have to create the same amount of intellectual property uh, that, that, that Lucasfilm had, you know? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, so I don't want to pick on Yuga Labs here, but like they have a lot of biddling to do. <laughs> they got a lot of biddling ahead of them, I would say. That they do. Um, last thing is just an update on the merge. Uh, I would really recommend people go listen to the Bankless episode with Tim Bako that David and Ryan did. Yeah, uh, I think it came out this like a day ago. 
um, or maybe even today, but it was really, really yep. good. Um, but we'll just give a quick summary, but I would get, if you want to get, get into it, I'd recommend listening to that episode. I'll, I'll give a little bit of context. Basically, we're leading up to the Ethereum mainnet merge, right? But before that, there are a couple of different test nets that we have to go through. There's the, uh, this is the Rothstein test net. So the Rothstein test is what we just had. After this, there's the Sepolia test net merge, and then there's the Gwarly test net merge. Why these names are so complicated, mm -hmm. I do not know. Um, this is what happens when developers create the names of the of, of the <laughs> things. So basically, the Rothstein. Uh, I'm sure there's actually yeah. re there reference to something, but the Rothstein uh, test net merge uh, was a success. There were some. Here's the quick overview. It was a success. There were some minor bugs, uh, a little bit of configuration issues. Uh, those issues were quickly resolved. Participation reached 99%. Um, there was like one known issue of a client timeout when building a block with zero transactions. I don't fully understand what that means, but um, good. it was good news across the board. One step closer to the merge. Um, the I think the most interesting thing here is just like when merge, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Here are the current odds for the merge on Polymarket. 28% chance that the merge happens by September 1st, 65% chance that the merge happens by October 1st, and a 90% chance that it happens by end of year. So by September 1st, 28%, October 1st, 65%, and a 90% chance this happens by the end of the year. Yeah. What what I would just say is, you know, this is where you, you kind of have two prevailing schools of thought here, and I think they're both right. Uh, but there's the market school of thought, and then there's the fundamentals long-term investor school of thought. I think if you zoom out and look at this from a long-term perspective, you can only look at this as bullish, assuming that Ethereum doesn't completely break, which is not, which is a risk, probably a small risk. Uh, but, you know, the merge is going to, first, it's, it's shifting from proof of work to proof of stake, which just makes it more scalable. Uh, you know, all, all, all this, sorry, it's, it's very bullish in terms of what's actually going to happen fundamentally with the merge, makes a more deflationary asset, all that good stuff. Um, but then there's the market view, which is, in the short term, this is uncertainty. And in general, markets tend to hate uncertainty and investors will hedge. Yeah. Um, so I I think there are probably pretty good arguments that, and also our macro environment just sucks so badly. I think that's overriding everything. So I think, I don't know, I'd be cautious about people who are, I think there's a way to interpret comments that are, they're very bullish on the, the long-term future of Ethereum, but I, I wouldn't read those from those people as like, you should be buying no. ETH at the particular moment in time. Not that I'm not that I have any special insight, but no. I think I just want to point out. I think people talk about the merge from two very different viewpoints: a market standpoint and a fundamental standpoint. Good call. Yeah. How did we do? Cool, bro. I thought we did all right. I thought we did all right. Yeah, not bad. Um, it'll be better than uh, you know. We should do this after your bachelor party in two weeks and see how much worse we do. <laughs> that pray for Jason, guys. He's got his bachelor party coming up in two in two weeks in Cabo. Pray for you. Pray for me, please. Pray for me. We need it. Awesome, buddy. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your week. I guess I'll, I'm sure we're on several calls. I'm sure the rest of this week, but I will talk to you. This has been this, day, this has been yeah, yeah. This has been a joy. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed it, toss us a five star review. Subscribe, follow, whatever you got to do, uh, and we will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers.